0: So insight doesn't mean we speak it we need insight to know what to do with the insight <laughs> <laughs> all of this is lifting us out of the crippling Superficiality and allowing us to move as mature ministers of Christ in a lost world because what this retreat is about is spiritual formation in preparation for Christian ministry. And another way to say it is when the harvest really comes, are we ready to bring the harvest to maturity? How do we bring people to maturity? Not in the first instance by speaking words to them. But in the first instance, we bring people to maturity, listen to this, by bringing them to God so that they can hear God speak the word to them. The healing word, the word that heals us, very often we must hear directly from our Father. It's too personal. It's too, it makes us too vulnerable. He knows when we're ready. Now, I hope none of that hinders you if you move in a prophetic ministry. I'm not trying to hinder you. I'm not trying to pull cold water on you. I'm, I'm, I'm calling you to move from, make sure you're not a part of the immaturity and the superficiality and that you move in maturity in whatever it is that God is calling you to Okay, now, okay, back to um, 2 Timothy one we You've got this gift, and it's in Timothy, and it has come to him through the laying on of hands of the apostle and also of the elders. So we've got a group of godly people who are mature and discerning. So whatever one person thinks can be be affirmed by the others and there's the prayer for this young man. Now, we think of Timothy as a young man. Let no man despise your youth. We think, well, he's probably 15 or so. Mm -hmm. Timothy might have been mid-30s when Paul said to him, let no man despise your youth. Okay, so we got the gift. What does the gift mean? What's the result of the gift? Let's just say for the purpose of just our own context that this is some, the beginning of an anointing. What does that look like? And, and, and what are the consequences of that? 2 Timothy is filled with instructions from Paul to Timothy. He's received the gifts through the laying on of hands, but now there come instructions that in the language are command forms. So command, not in the sense of you know some kind of harsh command, but instructions. What instructions does Paul give to Timothy after he has received his gift? Well, let's just look at a few of them. Uh, verse 6. Timothy is told to fan into flame. Verse 6. For this reason, I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God. So somehow this gift of God is not something that just descended on Timothy and all of a sudden there it was. He has to fan this into flame. How do you do that? Think about that. George, yeah. can I interrupt and ask if you know, we turn those lights on? Yes. I'm becoming blinder and blinder. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great example of the is a great example of how the spirit must be connected to the physical world <laughs> without light it doesn't work so well How do we banning the flame? I'm not going to answer that. Think about that. Verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. Share in suffering. What do I do with this gift? What are the consequences of this gift? Share in suffering. If we're not willing to share in suffering, what will happen to the gift? Think about that. Now we're going to go on and talk a little bit more about Timothy, but I can't help being here. you you just uh, um, point this out to you. In 2 Timothy... We see this awesome thing taking place in Paul that speaks to us again about the victim mentality and speaks to us again about what to do with our thoughts. Paul in 2 Timothy is most probably facing death. He's in prison probably for the second time. He probably knows the end is near. He probably is awaiting death. He says later on that all kind of his co-workers have forsaken him. So, one thing that Jesus and Paul both share is at the very end of their lives, the majority, almost all, of their co-workers had forsaken him. The apostles, Jesus, fled. So when you see Jesus on the cross and you say, well, what was Jesus' mission statement? And was he successful in his mission statement? At the end of his physical life, there wasn't a lot to show right at that point. Very quickly after that, there was. So Paul, beheaded in Rome, many of his co-workers had forsaken him, ended up in a Roman prison. It wasn't a pleasant experience. Now watch, watch his thought patterns here in verse 10, second part of the well let me begin reading in verse ten. And which now has been manifested through the appear verse chapter one, verse ten. Which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Which is why I suffer as I do. Anybody want to sign up for that? <laughs> Would you like to be an apostle? <clears throat> a preacher and a teacher? I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher for this gospel. This is why I'm suffering as I am. So, right there, Paul's thinking about himself. And he's thinking about his suffering. And it's understandable that he's thinking about himself, and it's understandable that he's thinking about his suffering because it hurts. If you take a hammer and bang your thumb, you are going to be thinking about your thumb. So when we're suffering, we're thinking about the suffering. That's natural. Watch where his thoughts go. Which is why I suffer as I do. Here's the switch. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard that day, guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Can you see how his thoughts go to his suffering and immediately from his suffering to God? Can you see that? Can you see that process? His mind had been renewed. He had been given the mind of Christ his thoughts were trained to focus and center on God and in the normal experience of life when pain was there you're thinking about your pain he had taught himself focus on God now that's part of renovation of the heart that's part that's a, that's a, that's a picture of maturity in Christ. Let's get back to Timothy. A couple more thoughts about Timothy. Verse two, chapter two, verse three. Again, we 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 see this phrase: share in suffering. So, what is Timothy to do with the gift? What does the gift? What are the consequences of the gift? Is the gift just something that's there, whatever happens? Or are there decisions and actions that Timothy is required to take to bring the gift to maturity? Did it all just happen instantaneously when hands were laid on him? Or was this a lifelong process of deeper and deeper maturity that was working in him? So, um, 2 Timothy 2.3, share in suffering. Then we get... Symbols that we talked about symbols. So Paul gives Timothy some symbols to help him image what a mature servant of God is like. And he gives him the uh, image of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. So verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. What does that mean? Does that mean it's wrong to have a job? No, it doesn't mean that. Of course it doesn't mean that. Paul himself uh, spent some parts of his ministry making tents and selling tents. It doesn't mean that people who work normal jobs are not doing the will of God. (coughs) Having said that, it does say no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. This links in with what we were talking yesterday. Getting entangled in civilian pursuits is far more than having a job and having to take care of a family. All kinds of other things that we need to revisit to free up the time and energy we need for the pursuit of God. Um, Then, verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he can according to the rules. The hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Hard-working farmer. All of this is giving us a picture. We're trying to present a picture here of what the ancient anointings and the development of the ancient anointings involves. Mm-hmm. Now, um, do, go to verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best. What does that mean? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Do your best. Now, we're almost uh, through this, but go, go with me to verse 22, chapter 2, verse 22. So flee youthful passions. What does that mean? How do you do that? How do you flee youthful passions? He's 30, maybe he's 35 years old. Flee youthful passions. How do you do that? Do you do that by willpower? The answer is no. If you think you do that by willpower, you misunderstand the role of the will. Because, for example, the will can quickly at any point be overridden by the emotions. This leads to much Christian defeat because we have the idea that we have to do all this by willpower flee youthful passion. I just decide I fail you know I I remember I had an experience of the Lord my initial experience of the Lord was somewhere between the age of 10 and 12 God made himself known to me In St. Thomas Episcopal Church, Richmond, Virginia, in a way that was absolutely life-transforming. It was the most glorious, the most healing, the most desirable, the most wonderful experience of my entire life. It has been an experience that I've remembered my entire life. It has kept me. It kept me out of liberal theology. My first year in college was at a Presbyterian college where liberal theology was taught. You know, the 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 story of the Old Testament is the story of the search and development of the concept of monotheism in the people of Israel and the prophets understood it much more than Abraham did, you know, all of this. The JEDP, the whole, I got the whole thing. And at the end of that year, as a college freshman, I decided if what I'm learning here is true, and what I experienced in St. Thomas Episcopal Church is a lie, I would rather have the lie because there was something in that that was so powerful and so life giving, and I won it and I've lost it, and I will do anything to get that back. Yeah. And that summer, I became a pastor of a little country church, 75 people, that was in the Disciples of Christ and it was the blind leading. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I don't know how I got them I don't even know what were <laughs> <things>? <laughs> <laughs> clean uh, I was going to say. youthful we'll passions. Yeah. <laughs> Flee youthful passions. Yeah. Flee youthful passions, okay. That experience, you know, I'm going to say it really, I want to say it really softly. That experience, I now understand to be the doctor. It, you probably never had an experience like it. It's okay. You know? Because I'm telling you this, this experience was the most life-giving thing I've ever had. But I'm also telling you that after that, I became an atheist. After that, I was filled with anger. That experience, although it's been life-changing, life-transformational, I've never, ever forgotten. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced. There wasn't anything magic in it. It didn't make me godly. Mm. But it planted something in me that made me unable to come away from the hunger to be God. So that when I became an atheist, I could not sustain my atheism. (laughs) I couldn't couldn't deny what happened to me at St. Thomas Episcopal Church. And we talked about the Episcopal Church yesterday, you know. You know, I'm not saying that the Episcopal Church should become Episcopalians. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying God did it to me in the Episcopal Church. And so, God is alive. And he's alive in his church. But that experience did not make me something other than what I had to decide to do and have to decide to do today every day. Now, we're coming in for (laughs) a land, Verse 23. This is to Timothy, and it has everything to do with what we're talking about, reflections on ancient anointings, but it also reconnects with what I started, you know, this morning on reconciliation. Second Timothy 223. This is again instruction to Timothy. Timothy my son in the faith. Here are my instructions to you. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. (laughs) Do you think Christians ever get involved in foolish, ignorant controversies? (laughs) Foolish, ignorant controversies breed quarrels. Verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So here's a question for you. We had a sweeping view yesterday of all some of the divisions that have taken place in the church. How many of those divisions were caused by Christian leaders who were quarrelsome. Now, I don't have to agree with you to avoid being quarrelsome. I can make it clear to you that I don't agree and still be kind because that's what it says here. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everybody. Kind. We can be kind to those with whom we have a different theology. We can be kind to those who are in error. We can be kind to those who have a liberal theology. We can be kind. That doesn't mean we have to agree, and we can be clear that we don't agree. So when we talk about reconciliation, we're not talking about denying the truth. We're not talking about pretending that it isn't bad. You know, I want to talk about all this, and maybe after Hannah shares is the right time to talk about it, it gets into what is forgiveness. This is why Jewish people can't connect with this thing, forgiving Germans. They can't forgive Germans. Why? Because in their understanding, forgiveness means it wasn't so bad, and it was horrible. So someone took their parents and put them in a the gas chamber and gassed them to death, and then burned their bodies in the oven. I will never ever forgive that. We we know German people; they will not step. I know a German, uh, German a Jewish person who was on a bus tour of Europe. When the bus got to the German border, got off the bus. I will not step my foot in that German. I will never forgive. The understanding is to forgive is to minimize or deny. Biblical forgiveness never denies and never minimizes. If you have any doubt about it, look at the cross. If God was into minimizing evil, this would not have been necessary. Oh, I wasn't so bad. No, it's it's very bad. Evil affects offends a holy God. He is offended. Now, God can be offended. That's a safe thing. For me to be offended is not so safe. God can be angry. I'm happy with that. For me to be angry is happy with that. God is offended by sin. He will never deny sin. He will never minimize sin. His son went to the cross because he will never minimize sin. Forgiveness is never minimizing. Forgiveness is, you have wronged me in the deepest kind of way. It is not my role to retaliate. Therefore, I will leave retaliation to God, and I will not require you to suffer it. that comes, that is not a technique. Reconciliation is not a technique. Reconciliation is not a technique. It is an expression of an inner reality. In order to be involved in the ministry of reconciliation, we become a certain kind of person for whom reconciliation is a natural expression of who we are on the inside. What kind of person is that? You know, it's the kind of person Jesus is. It's the kind of person Jesus is. Jesus was not quarrelsome. Brothers and sisters, when somebody wants to quarrel, just stop. Just stop. Don't enter into quarrels. We're told right here, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Kind. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. Somebody's wrong. What do we do? Bam, I'm in the nose, and you're wrong. No, gentle. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. And sometimes they won't receive the the correction and start to quarrel. What do we do? Stop. 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 You say, well, I can't stop, you I'm too mad. Well... I recommend some solitude. (laughs) Because God can transform that anger inside of you to where you can receive the anger from somebody else and just simply stop and absorb it. There is no need, hear me, there is no need for us to be hurt. I wonder if you can receive that. I have been deeply hurt in Christian ministry. Deeply hurt. To where the word that came to me was betrayal. I had been betrayed by the people that I gave the most I remember sitting, Hannah and I were living in this house. It was a like a castle to us. When we first came to this country, I remember sitting on the couch. When my Bible opened to 1 Corinthians 13, I had preached a hundred servant messages on love. I know I have. And I remember saying to God, God, I will never be able to love again. I will never be able to love again. I remember saying. That. I was so hurt. You know something? That hurt was a fruit of my own sin and immaturity. Mm-hmm. That's what it's a fruit of. It's the old man that gets hurt. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't mean that to be unkind. And if you're hurt, I I, I, I don't mean to be unkind at all. Because I was very hurt. So join the club. Mm-hmm. But there is a place in Christ where we just don't get hurt. If somebody else sins against us, that's their decision. I'm not responsible for your sin against me. I'm responsible for my reaction to your sin against me. What, what should be my reaction? Well, how would Jesus react? How did Jesus react? This is not Christian platitudes. Timothy, do not be quarrelsome, be kind, be gentle, be patient, listen, help to take those that oppose you to the place of healing. If they're not ready to go, honor their decisions. How much of the divisions are the fruit of the heart and the spirit in quarrel? So now I'm ending. I am convinced that the greatest need in world evangelization is Christ-like people. greatest need in world evangelization is not more strategies, not more money, not more missionaries. All those things are good and important. But the greatest need is Christ-like people. I am convinced that the greatest need in bringing the church together and healing all these awful divisions is Christ-like people who know how to be kind who know how to be gentle. Because isn't that the way Jesus is? Do we think we will bring Jesus' church together by behavior that is not like Jesus? I don't think so. I think bringing the church together is a function of people who are growing to be like Jesus. Like Jesus. Because when we come together, Jesus will be in the middle. He will be in the middle. He is in the middle. So brothers and sisters, these are some thoughts from George between breakfast and morning prayer. (laughs) 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 On the subject of restore the ancient anointings. Now it's time for a break. So let's pray.